I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James. As the Lord wills, I hope, um, as I have opportunity to preach, to work through James as uh, my regular place of, uh, of preaching from, with some interruptions, as I expect the Lord will bring. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the voices of your people lifted up in praise. That you, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, have redeemed for yourself a people. You have called us out. You have given us great promises. Now sustain us with the food of your word and fill us with your spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be looking at James 1, verse 2 through 4 this morning. The familiar passage, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It seems strange to have a passage on suffering on a morning in which we have such a glorious celebration of what God is doing um, in bringing a young man to see and savor Jesus, to join his family in sharing that faith. But I've heard many preachers say that you're either in suffering, just passed through suffering, or you're about to go through some suffering. This is our, our state. The combination of celebration and suffering is something very familiar to the human experience. In fact, I mean, Charles Dickens, when he opens up the tale of two cities, that classic. He opens up with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Those memorable words resonate with us because we understand that we can have celebration and sorrow in the same soul. We are complex. At the same moment, you can experience something that is deeply painful and deeply joyful. I think of childbirth or the death of a believing grandparent. And, and though none of us wishes for these experiences of pain or sadness, it is often these difficulties that form the backdrop of some of our most profound, our strongest, could we even say our fondest memories? It, it's trials that draw our gaze upward Trials that bind us together. Trials that transform us and shape our character. Trials like getting feedback from your mic. It is big trials and it is little annoyances. In trials there are graces given and Glimpses of God, you can't get any other way. 
But this can be really hard to see in your suffering. In the suffering, you may only see the darkness. In the suffering, the heavens may just seem like bronze. And so in our sufferings, we need these words from James to remind us that these trials are for our good. If you are in Christ and you are facing trials, those trials that you are facing, they are not an interruption to your best life now. They are your best life now. They are the best way for you to glorify God and to know Him in all the ways that He wants you to know Him. But we look around at each other. We look around at those around us and we say, but what about them? They don't have chronic pain. Their kids aren't disrespectful. They didn't lose their job. How can I sign up for that best? We assume that God's... I think this... I, I just need to keep from hitting that. Okay. I think I'll be good. Alright. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny, but a lot of times our trials are the little annoyances. We can die as quickly from a thousand... Well, maybe not as quickly, but we can die from a thousand wasp stings as from a bite of a venomous snake. And you can have your joy killed by a thousand little annoyances as much as that big challenging trial. But we're looking around at others and we're wanting somebody else's best. But trials come in many shapes and sizes and God's best does not come in a one-size-fits-all. We assume it does. And we assume way too much about each other's lives. Proverbs 14.10 says, Each heart knows its own bitterness. God gives one man professional success and then He breaks his heart by a wayward child. Another man is a gifted evangelist but is plagued by attacks of depression. One sister carries the pain of abuse. Another, the pain of crushed dreams. And another, a painful disease attacking her body. Each of us is going to face different trials. And to each of us, James says, count it all joy, my brothers. In those trials, count it joy. The trials that you are facing or will face are God's unique gift to you so that you can grow in faith and your experience of His presence. We can joyfully embrace our trials, whatever they may be, because as we will see, one, the trials are God's good plan for us. Two, the trials display God's power in us. And three, the trials serve God's perfecting of us. So first, let's look at the fact that we can embrace trials with joy because those trials are God's good plan for us. As Joseph said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
As we go on, we'll unfold with James some of the good that God does through our trials, but it's important to start by simply establishing, stating the fact, your trials are God's good plan in your life. In programming, we would say that's a feature, not a bug. And I love the fact that James extends this to trials of many kinds. God is not merely reminding our brother Brian that he is sovereign over cancer attacking his body. He is reminding some of you that he is sovereign over a child breaking your heart. He is reminding some that he is working a good plan even when your employer fires you or fails to make good on raises they promised. I think trials of various kinds can even extend to mics not working or finding snakes under your hot tub. Some of you know what that's about. The difficulties in our lives are not the result of God getting distracted. Like when you're in the kitchen and you're cooking too many things and then you suddenly smell the burning because you forgot the cookies in the oven. God never burns His cookies. Unless He wants to. Then He's got a good reason. But God never says, Oops. Your trials are planned. They are planned for good. But, But is this a fair reading of James? This word used here um, in our passage, when you meet trials of various kinds, and we see it again in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Uh, The verb form of it is used in verse 13, where James emphatically says, don't blame God for this. Verse 13, let no one who says when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. And this is a good place to introduce the idea of semantic range. Because why not? Semantic range is a big term, but it just means that the way we use language, words have groups of meanings. And it's alright for James to use a word one way, and then a little bit later, a slightly related word, he can use it slightly different. There's a range of meanings. For instance, I can say, I'm going to take a run around the neighborhood, and when I get back, I'm going to run to the store to get some detergent so we can get the dishwasher running. And none of you are concerned with my truthfulness when then I take the car to the store or concerned about my sanity because Warren doesn't know that appliances don't have legs. So this, this is an annoying thing with word studies where people will say, like, this word means this. Well, some words are very specific, but sometimes, often there are these, these ranges of meanings because words are flexible. They're not endlessly flexible, but they are flexible, so we rely on context. Context teaches us that James's point in verse 13 about temptation is different than his point here about trials. I, I love the fact that pretty much all your translations recognize that difference. So they, reckon, they, they translate it trials, and then they translate the other temptation, the verb form. God does not tempt His children, but He does test them. He refines them. 
drawing on uh, the, the word for um, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is a, a picture, at least in the way that's used in the Septuagint to translate a few passages, it pictures the refining of silver and gold. And in the same way as God tests us, He proves us. He purifies us. And this fits with the context of James's theology. James has sometimes been accused of not having much of a theology because his concerns are with the ethical demands of kingdom living. That's what dominates this epistle. But like all of us, he has a theology. Fundamental things he believes about God and the world. James believes in a big God, a king with a kingdom, a judge who is standing at the door. He takes it for granted that this king rules over all, down to the details of your daily planner for tomorrow. So if we flip over a page and look at chapter 4, verse 13 through 15, we're reminded, don't make your plans as if you rule the world, because you don't. When you plan for tomorrow, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, He's got a plan. When we make our plans, we hope that they will align with what He has planned. But we can't guarantee that. James doesn't argue for the sovereignty of God in this epistle because he's assuming the whole Old Testament and the Old Testament has already done that. It has already proved that God is the King who rules over all. All he has to do is point to a story. Like in chapter 5, when he refers to Job, chapter 5, verse 11, he says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He just mentioned Job, and everybody's like, Yes, because Job is the premier example of suffering and of God's sovereign care having control of that whole situation, even though Satan is the one trying to tear Job down, even though it was raiders, men, who came and stole his camels and his donkeys. And not only do we have James's context and the context of the Old Testament, but we have the context of the New Testament as well. Because this passage, our passage this morning in James 1, is very similar to some other passages. Romans 5, that, that opening section, uh, you can check it out. Romans 5, Paul says some very similar things. And Peter, in 1 Peter 4.19, which we're closer to, Peter will say, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Peter and James want you to know that if you are suffering, you are suffering according to the will of God. Reading James and Peter together, we should note that not all suffering is a trial. Sometimes God is not so much testing us as teaching us. Not so much expanding our faith as exposing our foolishness and sin. So, again, referencing Peter in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief 
or an evildoer or as a meddler. Kids, if you are obnoxious and annoying and mean, people will not want to be around you. And that is not God testing your faith. That is God teaching you not to be meddlesome and mean. If, if money's tight because you lose your job unexpectedly or have medical problems or transmission goes out, our passage in James is for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds because you know that that testing is producing steadfastness. But if money's tight because you can't say no to yourself and you spend money faster than you make it, then um, we don't get to sit there with our Gucci sunglasses on and say, God's really testing my faith. He's not. Some... Some suffering is a James 1 testing of our faith suffering. And some suffering is a Proverbs don't be a fool suffering. So we have to have both of those categories. But we're all a little bit foolish. As God is still making us perfect and complete, we all still stumble in many ways. In many of our trials, we can find sin making our situation worse. God knows that. James knows that. This passage, James 1, 2 through 4, is still for you. Change what you can. Endure what you can't. In all of it, rejoice in a Father who is merciful and gracious and good. If you are in Jesus, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that wonderful plan will almost certainly include a lot of trials. So we embrace trials with joy because of God's plan. We can also, secondly, embrace trials with joy because those trials display God's power in us. At the dinner table, my kids like to ask deep questions like, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And so, of course, you have to deliberate. Flying would be a lot of fun. Um, uh, Telepathy would be powerful, but a little creepy. Um, Steadfastness rarely makes the short list. Endurance? I mean, unless you loop like regeneration somehow into endurance... It's not really what we go to. Uh, steadfastness, perseverance, endurance, these are the, the words our, our translations use here in, in James. It's not a, a, a flashy concept. It's not exciting. No, it can be. Endurance can be exciting. It can be flashy. For instance, we all like to see the karate kid in the midst of his pain stand up and do the crane kick to win the tournament. Some of the kids are like, what are you talking about? And we love to see Miles Morales, after getting pounded by Kingpin, stand up with his crushed ribs and say, you ever heard of a shoulder touch? Endurance is awesome when you bundle it with triumph. 
The problem is that most of our trials aren't bundled with triumph. They're not triumphant climactic moments. Most of the time your suffering doesn't come packaged and labeled with its purpose. This is what you take this for. This is what God's doing. More often than not, endurance is just hard. And it's hard for a long time. And it doesn't look like it's accomplishing anything. It just looks like pain. We read Christian biographies. You should read Christian biographies. You should get a big book like this. John Piper's collection of 21 Christian biographies. And you should read Christian biographies. We, but we read Christian biographies and we read them as a highlight reel. You know, like the YouTube shorts or, or the, the, the Facebook reels or whatever. Like we're, we're seeing the high points. And we take years and decades and a whole leap. Like the story of Adoniram Judson, who was used by God mightily in Burma, now the country of Myanmar. And result, his, his work has, has borne the fruit now of, of 3,700 Baptist congregations in that country. And if you read his biography, then you get to the outpouring that God gave in the year 1831 and you say it was all worth it. All that suffering. Page In 1831, Judson writes about this outpouring that these people were coming from all over. Two or three months journey from the borders of Siam and China to say, Sir, we hear there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Or people come in from the interior saying, Are you Jesus Christ, man? Give us writings that tell us about Jesus Christ. That makes the suffering worth it. That's 19 years later. 19 years. A year is not a blip. A year is 25,600 minutes of pain of not seeing your work bear fruit. Of going to prison if you're Adoniram Judson and leaving behind your wife to give birth and seeing your baby pine away. The suffering for 19 years looks like Losing your wife. Seeing her die. Seeing three of your kids die. Being in prison, hung by your ankles at night, tortured for 18, 17 months. Or consider the story of Joseph. We love the story of Joseph. How does God rescue the, provide for the, the Israelites? He brings Joseph. He sends them ahead of them. And yeah, he had to, you know, go to serve as a slave, and he had to go to prison, but it all works out in the end. Yeah, like 14 years later, or so. Or consider my friend Jer, who dropped in on Friday. We've known Jer and Allison for a long time. And. He was coming into town to pick up his stepson. He's the strongest, one of the most faith-filled, hard-working men I know. 
and God's good plan for him has meant having his wife commit adultery against him 15 years ago. We walked with them through that. And for 10 years or so, we watched as she became increasingly verbally and emotionally abusive, blaming him for all the problems in their marriage, accusing him of all sorts of things, but we had them in our home. They stayed with us many times and we would watch this and we would speak to them. We would encourage him and challenge her. Eventually, she asked him to move out. He respected her. He gave her some space. He kept pursuing her. He was always there for his boys, the three boys. And he hoped and he prayed and he sought to woo her and he served Jesus and served his family. He labored. He worked his business. He cooked. He cleaned. He did everything. And eventually, she asked for a divorce. Where's the good in that? He's remarried now. Now he has six, six boys. It's beautiful. Except for the three boys in his home. Remind him of how little time he has with his other three boys. He has one day to point them to Jesus. Where's God's good in that? God's good in that is He has made Jer into a man who displays His glory through faithful endurance. And He may do that in your life. Jer's story does not look like our Christian success stories. That's not the way we want the story to end. And we haven't seen the ending. But right now, right now it's hard. And we don't like looking like that. We want to look strong and successful. That's what the people that James was writing to wanted to look like. They wanted to look like these people. That's why when these when, when the bigwigs came into their church, they wanted to give them the seat of honor because that's who they wanted to be. That's why they had these ideas of wisdom that looked like you all respecting how much I know. And James will say in chapter 3, the wisdom from above looks so much different. We want all these things. We want to look strong. But God is saying to us, My strength is perfected in your weakness. My power is perfected in your weakness. And so Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4.7, We have this treasure not in these ornate china vases, not in these golden holders. We have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is not of us. It belongs to God and not to us. And this is the beauty of endurance. And this is the joy of our trials. That they display God's power and worth with a brilliance you can't get any other way. You have to get away from the city lights in order to see the stars. And it's often only in the dark nights of our soul that we can see God's sustaining grace most clearly. You will not be able in your next trial or the one you're going through right now 
to live for a potential triumph that you think might come decades later after the suffering. You do not have the imagination or the stamina to do that. The only way we get through trials like that is with the joy of seeing that they are working endurance in us right now. Right now, God is producing endurance. And your endurance makes much of God. As John Piper has said, nothing glorifies God more than maintaining our stability and joy when we lose everything but God. And your Heavenly Father sees that. And He says, that's beautiful. That is glorious. Third, we can embrace trials with joy because those trials serve God's perfecting of us. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The repetitive nature of our trials tempts us to think that our suffering is merely cyclical with no resolution, no progress, no purpose, nothing being accomplished. But that's not the whole story. In James, the display of God's power, as we just saw, His display of His power through our endurance is an end in itself. But endurance itself is not the end. The end is that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God's doing in your life. That's what God's doing through your trial. We are cakes and not just light bulbs. You're not supposed to know what that means. Light bulbs. Light bulbs are wonderful. Old school light bulbs, incandescents. They run a lot of power through a little bitty weak filament. And that filament can almost not take it. And so it just sends off these rays of heat and light. And we all appreciate that. That is good endurance. And it'll last, if you have a good light bulb, quite a while. And do a lot of good. But we are cakes as well. Cake theology says that a process is necessary to get us from the ingredients to the finished product. You need some beating. You need some baking. Some of us would love to imagine a spiritual maturity attained without the beating and the baking. Where we just add all the ingredients, the right ingredients, a little church, a little Bible reading, a little prayer, a little Christian fellowship. But we avoid the mess of God upending our lives and putting us through the furnace of affliction. But that's like me handing you a box cake mix and some eggs and some oil and saying, I made you a cake. I didn't. <laughs> There's, the process is necessary to transform the ingredients. And the process must have its full effect. Note that expression, full effect here, or perfect work in some translations. Sometimes we wonder why God doesn't shorten our sufferings. 
isn't a year plenty of time to learn all the lessons that can be learned from being ostracized by family or overwhelmed by work? A year's a lot. Can't, can't we just take me out of the oven now? No, you can't take the, oven, the cake out of the oven after 10 minutes. You won't have a cake. You've got to leave it in for the 30, 40 minutes. The whole time. And don't keep opening up the oven, kids. God is not making half-baked Christians. He's going to bake you thoroughly. He's going to finish the work. Whatever we might say about the prosperity gospel, many of us want a Christianity that makes us look strong, successful, pious, and wise. But God has other priorities. God is not out to make your life perfect. He is out to make you perfect. He is not concerned that your home, your closet, your follower list, or your bank account be lacking in nothing. But He is concerned to make sure that you are lacking in nothing. So He is going to perfect you. He is going to make sure that that steadfastness has its full effect. He calls you to that, to embrace that, and to embrace that with joy. The work He is doing and the way He is perfecting you. Because through your trials, He is teaching you to say no to your flesh. Your flesh says, I need that. And in your trials, when you don't have that thing, you realize, I guess I didn't need that. I didn't die. We, we laugh, but Paul makes that same point. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle against sin. There's a, there's a lesson to be learned there. God is teaching us we don't need all the things we need. Because in James 4, James is going to say, What's going to cause, what causes the fights among you? Isn't it that you want things? So through trials, God teaches us how to adjust our wants and to receive the good He gives. He is perfecting us in our trials because James 1 verse 21 will say that He has implanted in us His Word. And so what is our call but to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word. But God, I want to be awesome. Receive with meekness the implanted Word. And that implanted word is able to save your souls. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, if you are in a trial or in the next trial that you face, whether it is a sore back, or whether it's the result of city officials not dealing with crime and causing property values to go lower, whatever your trial is, 
Recognize God's doing something good. Let God do His good work, bringing you trials, and count it joy. Let testing do its good work, producing endurance, and count it all joy. And let endurance do its good work, making you perfect, and count it all joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good work in us. Help us to remember this, to celebrate it, and to receive all your good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.